2: Hello, and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about a wisecracking couple, both kick-ass spies, who go on leave after the birth of their baby daughter. They are intent on retiring from field assignments to raise their kid in peace, but they keep getting drawn back into action, first by a mugger called Muerte, played by Stanley Tucci, and then by a rogue arms dealer called Paulina Novacek. That's what I would be saying if I was so blindly obsessed with the 1993 film Undercover Blues starring Kathleen Turner and Dennis Quaid that I insisted on describing its plot at every conceivable opportunity. But I'm not, I've never seen it. This is really a podcast about a wisecracking couple, both kick-ass spies, sitting around and talking about films. I'm Sam Foster and joining me, a man as deadly in hand-to-hand combat as he is
1: great at child-rearing Danny Moran. Thank you, thank you. Sam, 14 days ago, a young... Ernest, beautiful irish man called michael patrick wrote to us he said just after seeing the survivalist think it's getting a uk wide release tomorrow i thought it was great but then again i might be horribly biased because i'm northern irish uh it's a northern irish film that isn't shite and or about the troubles <laughs> would love to hear your thoughts strong accent game well today we grant that man's wish when i review aforementioned film will it be worth the wait probably Uh, then we both deliver our verdict on popular box office smash Deadpool. We didn't want to see it, but I left my box out of the early films of Rainer Werner Fasben at a friend's house, so we couldn't watch the bitter tears of Petra von Kantz. So, Deadpool will have to be. We also do our level best to promote diversity by covering every bit of news about Selma Helmer, Ava DuVernay, and also cover news about old white man Spielberg, as his Native American friends probably call him. All of which leaves me just enough time to do my impression of Robert De Niro reading 6,000 tweets Each of them delivering a piece of slightly depressing news. What's the first bit of news? (sighs) He's reading them, isn't he?
2: Oh, he's not actually reading them out loud. Why would he? He's alone. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Listen, listen. (laughs) No. Wow, that's pretty powerful stuff. Films, films 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 lots of films 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 These good films bad films fun films sad films films we love weird films Lars von Trier films old films new films some John Woo films films that star Peter Fitch films by David Lynch films short films sick hours long we've got films up to your gills with films, films 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 movies are you feeling comfortable film chat has begun danny he loves to run into film chat and he he's a great so- guy He's a great guy, he's often got interesting stuff to contribute. He did so today with the following comment. Which actor or actress has worked with the biggest number of revered directors? Matt Damon racks up 11 by my count. They are very quickly read for time reasons. Ridley Scott, Steven Soderbergh, Steven Spielberg, The Coen Brothers, Gus Van Sant, Paul Greengrass, Francis Ford Coppola, Christopher Nolan, Terry Gilliam, Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese and Cameron Crowe. So you can go back and match his, you know, filmography to those directors if you so choose. Does anybody beat him, Matt Damon? Were well, you counting the Coens as one director or two? I guess one. That's one, right? Yeah. And uh, Chris Young and Michael Patrick both wrote a reply. Chris was suggesting Max von Sydow, who's one of the world's oldest men, um, (laughs) but he's worked with a lot of great directors, Ingmar Bergman, Bob Foss, John Huston, Sidney Pollack, David Lynch, Woody Allen, Wim Wenders, Lars von Trier, Dario Argento, Martin Scorsese again, Ridley Scott again, Steven Spielberg again, J.J. Abrams, and probably more. I don't know if Abrams is one of the world's greatest directors, but... Yeah. And also, what about the great director of uh, Ghostbusters 2, Ivan Reitman?
1: Yeah. He's the voice of... um...
2: He's the voice of um, Vigo. Vigo, yeah. Yeah. In a castle
1: of pain and the um, sandal throne of blood. Like well, a... the reason I was thinking about this question is because we were discussing when the mics were off that uh, Will Smith is the biggest A-lister I can think of, which hasn't, he hasn't worked with that many A-list directors. Yeah. With the exception of being Michael Mann for Ali. But apart from that... He just works with hacks. He just, well, he just, he just <laughs> you know, he obviously produces his own star vehicles rather than yeah. attaching himself to interesting projects. Yeah, it's like the opposite approach to, like, George Clooney. Yeah. Matt is also a similar one. Exactly. Well, they they work with people who are cool. Exactly. So, and I think that's what gives him longevity, because he makes movies with legs. Yeah. Another suggestion from Michael Patrick is Paul
2: Giamatti. I guess him and Max von Sydow are slightly different categories, because they're both very much character actors. But Paul Giamatti has worked with Cameron Crowe as well, Woody Allen as well, Sidney Pollock as well, Steven Spielberg as well, Milos Forman, Tim Burton, Alexander Payne, Ron Howard, Tom Hooper. Tom Hooper? Great director? No. Uh, <laughs> david cronenberg steve mcqueen and mike newell um so i guess your mileage may vary on the greatness of some of those directors yeah but yeah excellent
1: suggestions both of them i think with matt damon is that his ones are like a slightly safer list because he's the films he's made of these directors they're already established they've got like some really great films under their belt so it makes like perfect career moves for him even when like like, the Cameron Crowe movie is like, We Bought a Zoo, which uh, I'm not sure has really lived on the, in the memories of no, the no, no. Pro- That zoo is in disrepair. But if I was Matt Damon, I was like, the guy who directed Almost Famous wants me to be in a movie, I'd be like, yeah, sure, I'd, you know, what's it called? We Bought a Zoo, I mean, sounds shit, but... What if they were like, the gu- the director of Aloha wants you to be in a movie, what you're would like, you react like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. After I posted this, I came up with the correct answer.
2: Okay. <laughs> Even better than your own and the other two.
1: Which is Michael Fassbender. Though, even though his career is relatively uh, recent. recent, because he's got the best mix of established talent and super up and comers, because some of these have not been released. So he's got a tennis Malik movie in the works. He's made a movie with Ridley Scott, made a movie with Tarantino, made a movie with Danny Boyle, made a movie with Steven Soderbergh, made a movie with David Cronenberg. And he's also made a movie with Andrea Arnold, uh, Carrie Fukunaga, Lenny Abramson, Steve McQueen, Derek Siafrance, and Justin Kurzel who are all... Super hot shit directors.
2: What's the Derek France? Is he's, that one that's coming out? that's the
1: Light Between the Oceans was coming out late oh, this year. Right. Oh, that's Derek France. director of Blue Valentine, director of Blue Valentine, Place Beyond the Pines. Yeah, he's like hot new up and coming. That's calmer, a right? good. That's an excellent answer. That's a really cool list of directors. It's so true. I think yeah, Fassbender is like a bit more hot on, you know, who's good. Yeah, and he's also in on the ground
2: floor. And like Steve McQueen is quite hot shit now, but he was in Hunger. Yeah, and so uh, maybe he's better at like even out now the that talent. Fassbender's. Why, why do you think they? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 kind of cool that now, even though he's a, he's a really big star now, um, but he's still going back to these little directors like Justin, um, Justin Kurz or, you know, these little guys who are just starting their careers. Yeah, interesting discussion, Danny. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: You've given us all a great gift, the gift of chat. Regular film chat correspondent, Doogie McQueen, as no one calls him, uh, got in to say that Douglas Slocum has died at the young age of 103. He, is that who, how old he was? Yeah. He wow. Was I'm impressed by old. that,
2: even though I don't really know who he is. I think just anyone's age being that high yeah. is impressive.
1: Well, the thing is, I, I didn't really know his name, but then he's a director of photography and then you look at his credits and you're like, oh, okay, he's obviously a genius. And he was the director of photography on uh, Kind Hearts and Coronets and The Servant, the Joseph Losey movie, and probably most iconically, Indiana Jones, Razor of the Lost Ark. He lit that boulder and he uh, made it the bit of the shape. sunset when they're digging oh, yeah yeah that's yeah. a pretty
2: sick shot yeah any other DOP would have got that ray of light like in completely the wrong place yeah but mm-hmm. slowcomb he lined it up bam and kind hearts and coronets you've got to be good to do that because you're photog- photographing um alec guinness in so many different ways yeah he plays like 10 characters or something yes you know most people will probably struggle a bit to find yeah. interesting ways to show alec guinness but
1: he found eight different places to put the lights <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah one book in his character r.i.p. douglas slocum uh like david bowie i will now go and seek out your work after you've died and realize that i should have been more into you when you're alive yeah, man. but maybe you should have lived till you're 105 i mean come on okay thanks for writing in everyone it's always a pleasure to read out you're what wo- you wrote. you're welcome thank you danny yours was the best but oh um, you what everyone else wrote was very good as well the oscars is this sunday we will be live tweeting it at the ungodly hours that it is on, and I'll be utterly wrecked for work, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but on your Monday morning commute, you can go and look through our feed, and you'll probably be like, that might have been funny at the time. And Danny will storify everything, Yeah. so you can read it all at once. I'm going to try and avoid
1: hate-twitting people who you know express opinions on TV.
2: Yeah, I mean, when it gets to about 4am, it probably becomes difficult not to insult people, but we'll see what we can do. Uh, Chris Young wrote in a while ago asking um, about the worst Oscar nominees and winners of the 21st century so far in reference to an article on in IndieWire we haven't got yet got round to discussing it but maybe as part of our Oscar roundup next week we can do that it's going to be a great chat so we'll save that for next time Woo-hoo! superhero films tonight and-
1: i have the first bit of news selma helmer director of selma Ava DuVernay, we were just discussing her the other week in relation to that Lupita Nyong'o sci-fi movie. Yeah. But she's just in such demand these days, she's got another news story she's about just her. She's just devouring projects. So she's signed up for an adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time for Disney. Mm. What is A Wrinkle in Time, you're probably wondering? I am. What the hell's A Wrinkle, a wrinkle in what? Well, this, a what in time? Well, uh, this is Madeline Le Angles, 962 Tome, it follows the Murray family, especially teenager Meg and her genius five-year-old brother, Charles Wallace. And Meg's classmate, Calvin O'Keefe. Yeah, following me so far? Got it so far. Their scientist father has gone missing. But after the visit of a mysterious old lady called Mrs. What's it? Who tells their mother that there is such a thing as a tesseract. They learn that their father's research may have been more successful than they've guessed. And that he may have travelled in space and time. So the kids end up following his footsteps to a planet called Kamazots ruled by a giant evil brain called the Black Thing. Yeah, got it. That sounds exciting. Wow. Yeah. What else happens? (laughs) That's all I know so far. That's all we know so far. I don't want to go into spoiler territory. Cool. So, yeah, that premise is a
2: bit like um, the Meet the Robinsons, isn't it? Yeah. It's a crazy family of adventures.
1: Isn't that that episode of The Simpsons Halloween Special, which itself is a reference to Twilight Zone, where they find the third dimension behind the wall and then... Bart goes in and Homer goes in. Oh yeah, that one. It's and it ends up in the real world at the end. Yeah, yeah. It's just I that. hope it'll
2: be like that. I mean, it sounds sort of crazy, but then uh, a lot of fantastical kids' adventures would sound pretty absurd if you just read the plot out.
1: This sounds like a bit of a throwback, sort of, you know. Yeah, like it has uh, been a while since some kids go kids. on a
2: crazy adventure, kind of like bed knobs and broomsticks. Yeah, film. I guess they were super eight,
1: but you know that was shit. So
2: yeah, but it's not as fantastical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all just sitting in a set in a grim, miserable town. Um, <laughs> so i think it sounds like it could be fun it also sounds like it could be a massive flop i can definitely imagine that being the kind of movie that comes out and they do not know how to market it and everyone's like well but apparently the the book that it's based on is very successful hasn't been out of print since 1962 or something like that and uh it's sort of about stuff you know it's about like
1: good and evil and conformity and difference and things like that big themes good themes for kids it's going to be written by uh the writer of frozen jennifer lee and she, she made... knows how to write a hit she yeah that's still grossing it's probably grossed about seven billion dollars while we've been talking yeah movie.
2: it's still taking the billions in <laughs> billions as we and speak just purely from the sing-alongers at the prince charles
1: do you reckon i like a african-american family because ava duvernay very well she's like well they've got to be the same ethnicity as me no but she's one of the sort of figureheads of a sort of di- she's often quoted in diversity issues yeah
2: but is that just because there's so few prominent like people behind the camera
1: who are black anyway? That... Maybe. Yeah. But oh yeah, because we we were discussing it. You know, it'd be cool if this had roles for like a non race issue movie. Yeah. Just yeah, a family yeah. film had uh, black characters in it. Yeah, that would be great. Which but... weren't like wisecracking psychics. <laughs> like
2: Tyler Perry movie. Or yeah, something. yeah. 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 Definitely.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
2: Steven Spielberg. He is an up-and-coming guy. I think he shows a lot of promise. Yeah. Um, one day he may follow through on it. Yeah. And his next project is called Ready Player One. He's lining up uh, people for that. Is that the next movie that's gonna, he's going to make? Because he's like always juggling a bunch well, of he's, different things. Uh, he's
1: got the BFG. That's right. Already shot and done. Yeah. With Mark Rylance as the Big Friendly Giant. Yeah. He's been um,
2: heading back into his sort of mocap areas that he dabbled in for Tintin. Uh, so I guess that will come out first, right? The BFG. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then after that, he's doing more um, reality-based stuff, although maybe it'll also be quite animated as well. <laughs> this is a terrible, terrible intro by me. Um, called Ready Player One. is an adaptation of an adventure story. It's got a cool-sounding name. Um, that's yeah. one good sign. <laughs>
1: Ready Player One.
2: Yeah, and uh, it's based on a novel by a guy called Ernest Cline and it follows a teenager called Wade, this is how it's described in, on Empire Online, who likes to escape his dreary, dangerous real world by logging into Oasis, a globally networked virtual utopia where users lead idyllic alternative lives. Wow. When the game's eccentric Steve jobs star billionaire creator dies, he offers up his fortune as the prize in an elaborate treasure hunt, using his in-game avatar, Parzival, Wade is pitted against powerful corporate foes and ruthless competitors who will do anything in the Oasis and the real world to reach the riches first. So it's like National Treasure meets Tron. Yes. In other words, the most fun film possible. Brilliant. Brilliant. Old man Spielberg. Yeah. Can he reconnect with the youth? Does he, he go on Second Life a lot? Has he been doing that a lot as research for this film, do you think? Or like
1: spending some time in World of Warcraft? Maybe it'll be a bit like... One of perhaps the weakest elements of Jurassic Park is the sort of bizarre the girl's like a computer genius or something. And at the end, she's like, I've got to drag the folder into the right folder to close the gates. Yeah. It's a bit of a sort of, that's like dates it horribly. It's like, this is like a system I used at school, at computer camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe it would be like that. The best bit of Jurassic Park. Because that he, scene.
2: Steven Spielberg has been so busy making movies, he hasn't noticed the progress of technology since no. 1990-something. Probably not. The uh, billionaire creator character in the book, apparently, is obsessed with culture like computer culture from like the 80s and i think that allowed the author who is in his 40s to even though it's a modern game with like you know modern video game technology or whatever allowed him to reference all the things that he actually cares about like you know in the 80s when he was growing up Like what pong <laughs> um there's some japanese platform game called black tiger oh ah, you play Black tiger no no, no I, know what is. I don't really know what that is the tagline is something like the longer you play, the more exciting it gets, which is enticing. The, yes. That's what you want from a video game. Um, an <laughs> upward slope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think that, like, referencing slightly older culture is a bit more interesting? Like, do you think it would be kind of lame if it's like the guy's obsessed with the video games of 2005,
1: you know? Well, um, I don't know. This sounds out. more, ex- I'm more excited for this as a spillboat project than his most recent output. Mm. You know, I feel like I still haven't seen Warhorse. I mean,. Do I have to? No. He's sort of done that stuff, hasn't he? He's done war already. Yes. He's just put a horse in it. <laughs> <laughs> or even like the BFG, I kind of feel like I've, I can see that movie in my head. Even if this, I feel like this will push him out of his comfort zone a little bit. Well,
2: might... also some of his strongest stuff is his popcorn movies. Absolutely. And uh, entering a world of craziness and yeah, he's, taking uh, him on a ride.
1: He's like a master of set pieces. That's like his real...
2: Yeah. So that bodes quite well. Anyway. The actual news about that film, which I haven't even mentioned yet, is that they have just cast Ty Sheridan, who's an up-and-coming young man. He was in Mud and Joe, and other movies with more syllables in the title than that. And uh, he's going to join Ben Mendelsohn, who usually plays villainous, uh, creepy corporate men, and is doing the same thing here. And Olivia Cooke, who is an actress I've not heard of.
1: So, so woohoo! So woohoo! Yeah, yeah! Bring it on, Spielberg! Work,
2: Steve? Good work, says Stevie. Get out there and do your thing. Looking forward to the BFG. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ask a we poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him
1: off. Okay, so The Survivalist, as requested by Mick. Let it never be said that we don't immediately watch the films people tell us to do like yeah. two weeks after they've actually asked us to see it yes um, let that never be said let that never be said this is the debut film from writer director Stephen fingleton um so the survivalist is set in a sort of indeterminate future where oil has depleted and for whatever reason society has gone to hell and the survivalist of the title is this guy who lives off a little farm he's made deep in a forest he lives completely alone and one day, a starving woman and her, do- her daughter, or someone she claims to be her daughter, turn up, asking for food. And they strike a sort of bargain where, in uh, return for sort of sexual favours, he lets them live with them. And But they don't really trust each other. And a sort of uneasy, sort of weird nuclear family emerges. All the while, there's the threat of different marauding gangs somewhere in the forest who might... Um, discover their little sort of house okay so it's like a mad max with farming instead of driving absolutely here is one of the few bits of dialogue in the film which is when the survivalist of the title meets these two women
0: the real treasure then we have legumes brassicas strong varieties these could boost your yield Surely you can spare something. There's more than enough. That's what they all thought.
1: Yes, so this is a very lean, very atmospheric, uh, intense film that fully mines its limited resources for maximum effect. Uh, I found it a bit over-familiar at times. I felt like some of the stuff I'd seen before in different movies, but in general I was kind of sold on the film. What's kind of smart about the film is that The style of filmmaking is completely appropriate for the content in that it is a very stripped down lean film about people eking out just about an existence with no resources. It's like the filmmakers had as much resources as the characters in the film. And it does a brilliant job of evoking an entire economic collapse when the actual film is set in one forest and one house. There's also a clever thing with the style in that you feel that society is... um, broken down to a point that almost like basic communication is depleted and so the lack of dialogue is more that the spectrum of human emotion has just narrowed because everyone's just um, dedicated to surviving you know no they one has time for chit chat exactly yeah and it makes the performances even more impressive because they've got to communicate all these emotions with like sort of limited resources you know like they, when they're sad and happy it's kind of like tiny difference between those two states yeah it's like physically. at all times 80 percent is just trying to survive so you might be happy like 10 <laughs> percent. yeah 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 exactly the cast is really great um the lead um the survivalist martin mccann is uh really uh interesting screen presence he's got an amazing angular features he just looks great in profile and mm. so like just the opening shots of him kind of like looking super paranoid walking around this field like jesus what's going on what's this guy you know and he's like um I read a Kim Newman review where he said it's like a psychologically real Mad Max. Like, what do you actually be like oh, if you had been through yeah. an apocalypse? Yeah, And similar to how the mood suggests this whole uh, of a bigger movie they can't you know, afford to show, the performances have this weight to them where these characters, they must have been through some serious shit to just still be alive. And what's um, it's quite a cold movie in that respect because everyone in the film is so sort of um, self-serving. They're like not particularly likable. And the antagonists, the sort of marauders have the same motivations as the protagonists. And so you're just are, kind of rooting they- for them because you're following them. Yeah, but it's like, there's a question of like, are they any better? And if they are, marginally. So it's quite a subtle and unsentimental film. And it deliberately kind of keeps you at arm's length, I think, which uh, it's a matter of personal taste, which I found a bit of a problem, but I was kind of overall kind of sold on it. But what keeps you invested is there's just a presence of tension throughout the entire film and the direction is really superb in that respect because there's lots of sort of lingering shots where, you know, is there someone in the corner of the frame? You know, is, you feel like someone's going to jump out at you at any moment. But there is, it does suffer from a slight post-apocalyptic cliche of like, there is just a random threat somewhere which may appear if and when the plot requires yeah. some sort of exciting stuff to happen. It's sort of treading similar... Territory to the road in that respect. Yeah, that's the other movie that I thought of. Like super duper
2: bleak, cold, miserable world where everyone is trying to eat each other alive.
1: But I think the road packs more of a punch because you have a little, you've got this sort of strain of humanity and the father son relationship where that doesn't exist at all in this film. But that's not necessarily a flaw. But I think I found it more a case where I wasn't particularly emotionally invested in the film, but I was more swept away with it had fully created this world and there was enough tension in it that keep you invested. But when it was over, I didn't think it particularly was breaking any new ground or had something really interesting to say. But, you know, that itself is a huge achievement with no money to, like, create an entire realized world. Absolutely. Yeah, it's broadly quite good. I think it's more impressive than perhaps, like, a runaway success. But for a debut low-budget film, I was like, yes, pretty good. I watched an iTunes for £6. But you didn't have a good iTunes experience. You could always use the tail end of this review to take a big crap on iTunes. Listen, iTunes, when I go out of my way to download this small, independent British film... Support the British film industry. For Six pounds. I expect it to be instantly downloaded to my fucking laptop. Yeah. I don't have to wait two days and then watch it and then just stop and tell me it's downloading more. Fuck you, Steve Jobs. Ooh, time for a break
2: from all the film chats. Now i can telephone friends so you know where is at off now back to film chat deadpool is the big surprise hit of 2016 so far it was a pretty low budget for a pseudo blockbuster film and it has absolutely swept the records it's like the most successful x-men movie ever somehow and so on and we weren't initially that fussed about seeing it but it's just been such a smash that uh we decided to go check out and see what everyone was getting into. So it's a superhero movie that is R-rated. That's the kind of hook. It's key, It's got swears in it. It's got blood in it. It's got boobs, boobies, boobles. And this is what happens. So in the beginning, this is what happens to the whole film. Get ready to listen to the entire synopsis. I go through it in great detail. So the opening sequence... Features Deadpool, he's in a cab, and he's like a fun, wisecracking superhero. He's got a irreverent, scatological sense of humour. He likes to shoot people and stab them. And then in flashbacks, we are introduced to his history, uh, which is that he was a mercenary, and then he falls in love with a beautiful woman, played by Marina Baccarin. He's played by Ron Reynolds, by the way. He Then he gets cancer, and in order to survive so that he doesn't have to break her heart by dying or something he undergoes some crazy experimental treatment which leaves him disfigured and gives him superpowers and also gives him a super villain to have as his enemy in the form of ed scrine's character ajax and that's what happens here's a clip of him sort of towards the end of the film and him and a couple of other of his x-men pals are confronting the villains
1: go get some
2: she's gonna do a superhero landing wait for it Superhero landing!
1: Yeah, that's really hard on your
2: knees. Totally impractical. They all do it. You're a lovely lady, but I'm saving myself for Francis. That's why I brought him. I prefer not to hit a woman. So please play. I mean, that's why I brought her? Oh no, finish your tweet. It's not that's fine. Just give us a second. There you go. Hashtag it. Go get her, Tiger.
0: Oh, i so pity the dude who pressures her into prom sex.
2: It's not the best clip in the world, but like every third word in the film is like you know dick or balls or some bizarre reference to like US pop culture that no one's going to understand. So uh, that's, that's probably <laughs> the best that they could do. So I kind of thought Deadpool might be a very irritating film because the main character is this sort of invulnerable badass. He's got wound regeneration that's his power so anything that bad happens to him just you know is solved in seconds and he's all he's always going to be nudging you and like winking at the camera and making his funny little jokes and never being worried about anything and i was a bit concerned that the gags would be a bit teenage and lame and that the whole concept of it would be somewhat dramatically inert because he's never that bothered by things that happen to him so given those concerns I would say it's roughly speaking a success because I didn't find it annoying and that's what I thought I would. But having said that, those issues are still present in the film. It doesn't like completely overcome Yeah, them. You had a similar reaction to me, right?
1: Yeah. I felt this movie reminded me of uh, Guys of the Galaxy in that the sort of story behind the film was that it was this kind of risk and, you know, was outside the usual remit of the studio. But the only real risk is sort of greenlighting it and the actual film is quite conventional particularly yeah. in its plotting and i think that's a really good point it is like funny in parts but i think the sort of lack of imagination in the plotting is a big problem because it's essentially a conventional superhero movie but the main character just makes dick jokes and the jokes that really landed for me was when the actual film was being funny there's like a, a couple of funny um, montage moments and the kind of fourth wall four breaking stuff that's the actual structure of the film being funny whereas Most of the other scenes, is just like a typical, you know, a superhero fight, but one of them's talking about his dick. And it's like, there's (laughs) only so much that can, there's only so much mileage in that. Yeah. And I feel it like exhausted it pretty quickly and uh, just, I don't know, but wasn't aware of that.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's true. I also think that it could have benefited from having funnier writers because it lives and dies by the strengths of its jokes. The, The joke rate is about 10 a second. But I didn't think they were all first rate. You know, the hit rate of the gags is passable. There's so many of them that, like, you know, I guess statistically some of them are going to be pretty funny. Like, it's not like the least funny film ever, but it's not as good as something like Spy or In the Loop, which has really backbiting, bitter characters screaming insults at each other. But they're all incredibly brilliant and hilarious. Uh, and I felt
1: like this movie could have used a script polish from someone from one of those films to like yeah. give it a bit more z- um, zing. I think it's because it's still somewhat tied to the X-Men universe. So it's a superhero movie with a comedy character rather than a comedy which happens to be a superhero movie. And like that is why it's perhaps not as funny as it could have been. Yeah. Because, because they're sort of bogged it, down. If you take Deadpool out, all the other characters could pretty much exist in a straight film.
2: Yeah. And uh, there was a odd moment when there's a scene without Deadpool in it with just his two sidekicks, Colossus and Negasonic Teenage Warhead. And they're basically straight characters who've been slightly given slightly amusing lines in order to fit into a comedy film. And it's a bit of an odd feeling because they're making jokes, but they're not comic characters. So it's like, is it a comedy or not? You know, in the scenes when Deadpool isn't in it, it feels like it can't quite make its mind what it is. One thing that I quite liked about it, I think that Ryan Reynolds is... Completely sold on this role, he's carrying the film on his back, and he is super into it. And I don't think that his performance is super brilliant, and I don't think he's a first-rate comedian. But he's so committed that there's something winning
1: about how much he's desperate for you to love Deadpool. Yeah, like maybe it's just his natural Canadianness. He's just so nice. He's just so nice. You can sort of sense it.
2: Yeah, and also it's very important that the jokes are on himself as much as they are on the other characters because it will become boring if all he's doing is um, popping his funny barbs at like the goons, you know, and stamping on their faces. But if he is mocking himself sometimes, so that feels a lot more fresh. And it's, I I think the, the way in which it is the most new is that it's the humor of a slacker, R-rated American comedy with Seth Rogen in it. But the, it's all jokes on the guy who's got the body of a Greek God, you know? And usually those characters aren't doing that. And, uh, and the fact that he undercuts his own masculinity in that way is cool yeah and i like that and that that sort of stuff worked pretty well and i also think that his constant gagging and the fourth wall breaking was worked with his character it wasn't just like here's a superhero plop some gags on top i thought that he kind of sold that as like part of his personality that made sense absolutely and i think it's a thing in the comics as well that um deadpool is given that crazy, um, obsessive personality basically because he's driven insane by the horrible torture that he undergoes. And although he is already a bit like that before the torture in this film, it's kind of, it still is at least a character Be Like, at least they work it in.
1: Yeah. I feel that the success of his character led to some other problems in the film in that you've got the main character as his own comedy psychic and they had trouble getting a good villain to like they didn't know whether to go the opposite or someone as funny yeah and they've sort of sort of got like a sort of stoic guy but it's a bit it was a bit of the biggest disappointment in the movie i think because the Ed, villain yeah Edge Ed Ed Shrine. Shrine. Uh, i'm not sure if it's his performance or just how it's written i uh, think it's written in a
2: pretty boring way he's a very boring villain he doesn't have any interesting powers he looks normal you know he just smirks a lot he's very smug yeah. And, uh, he his character. There's no development for his character. He starts exactly the same as he ends. He's not bothered by any event. He just looks
1: sort of. Bleh. Well, the opening credits have this sort of set the tone by just crediting the cliched roles. So it's like you know a handsome guy, a hot teen, like a hot, uh, comedy, hot, chick, hot and chick and a moody teen, and there's like a British villain. But when you think of a British villain, you think of like a fesp, hammered it up with a European accent, stealing the show was like, this is like a budget British villain. It's like they couldn't afford Jeremy Irons. They couldn't really. afford the accent. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was, you know, I feel it was like a missed opportunity because that would have made it.
2: I think they should have gone for a villain who was also constantly making, you know, rapid fire gags. I think well, instead of seeming like he was going to upstage Deadpool, I think it just
1: would have made it tonally consistent. Yeah, and Stonewall. also in these superhero movies, like Iron Man's always fighting like Iron Man. The evil version of himself. Or the Hulk's fighting like a slightly bigger Hulk.
2: Yeah, it should have been an even more quippier guy or even more crazy. You know, the guy who makes Deadpool look sane He's like, I thought I was crazy. This guy, this guy, he's really crazy. That could have been that could have been pretty good. Yeah. So the the minor characters are broadly a bit of a problem. I think the TJ Miller character, who's the actual comedy sidekick uh, is perfectly fine. You know, he's quite good. And he fits in with the tone of it and everything. But some of the others, because Deadpool is driving the plot so much and the plot is so simple, <laughs> it, it doesn't like it just goes in one direction. But it kind of moves back and forth on that single straight line because it leaps around chronologically a bit. And when Ryan Reynolds isn't actively pushing it forwards, it feels incredibly static. And there are scenes in which he's just kind of interacting with some minor character who has nothing to do with the plot and doesn't move <laughs> it. And it just feels a bit like, meh, as though they only had enough story for 75 minutes and there's like 15 minutes of random padding with the blind old woman and the <laughs> cab driver. Yeah. And that stuff is fine. It was like funny enough, but it was just felt extraneous.
1: I feel like the, the part of the movie's success is that it's been perfectly placed in the calendar where there's nothing out at the end of february and it feels fresh and then it's r-rated and it succeeds in not being annoying and it succeeds in the full full breaking yeah but it just wasn't funny enough for me or wasn't exciting enough and i feel that the real audience for this movie or the people who enjoy it enjoyed it the most uh, would be slightly too young for it i feel like my 14 year old self would enjoy this movie a lot more but yeah. he wouldn't be able to but actually, they're, gonna,
2: they're gonna watch it anyway aren't they
1: Yeah, the kids, they probably stream it straight to their brains or whatever. Well, in America,
2: you can see R-rated movies if you're with your parents. What? So you can see it a bit younger in America than you can here when you can't go unless you're 15.
1: I once saw Troy, which was a 15, and I was 14. Is there a
2: boob in Troy? Oh, yeah. One or two. That feels like a movie for absolute children, though. Uh, Yeah, I kind of, (laughs) I I don't know. I I liked it. I liked it fine. I think that, uh, I like the fact that it felt like a passion project by These guys, it almost felt like they made it in their garage, except it cost 60 million dollars. And uh, you can tell that in the marketing and in the presentation of the movie, they're all having a great time, they achieved what they wanted to do. You can hear them high fiving practically at the end of the credits <laughs> roll. Uh, and there's something just charming about it, even if it's not amazing in any way. Yeah, so broadly speaking, it's fine.
1: I mean, compared to the bitter tears of Petra von Kant's, bullshit. bullshit, but on its own terms. Fine. Fine. When Zach Graff heard something that changed his life, what he listen to?
2: Film When John Cusack made a mixtape for his future wife, what did she listen to? Film And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? Film And when Tim Robbins showed Short Jack that he had enough, which record did he choose? Phil
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, as we were just discussing, Ed Scrine, up and coming British actor, yes. played Ajax. Somewhat boringly. He's also now the Transporter. He's replaced mm. and, uh But before he became this hot young actor, he was a rapper. Well, I guess he still is. But he pursued rapping as a career. He released a 2007 album called The Eat Up. Mm. He also had Hungry Rapper. Two extended plays. I don't know what extended plays even means. EP. See, EP? Yeah, like. Extended then... play. Yeah. Oh! Yeah. He had two EPs, one in 2004 called Mind Out, Once Upon a Scrine. That's a good name. And in 2007, he released another EP called Preemptive Nostalgia Brackets, With Once a upon... State of Mind. Okay, thought he was going to say Scrine again. And so I was Googling around about Ed Scrine, and I read that his rapper name was the Dinner Lady Pimp. Mm. P.I.M.P. And I was like, that can't be right. Dinner Lady P. I. M. P. The Dinner Lady P. I. M. P. So I Googled that, and I found this BuzzFeed interview where uh, the interviewer said, where did the name Dinner Lady Pimp come from? To which Scrine replied, when I was in school, I used to love food so much that I would always flirt with a dinner lady so that I could get extra food. Actually, in the press, a lot of the time, they say that was my artist name, but it wasn't. It was just something I messed around with. Yeah, he was just dabbling in being the Dinner Lady Pimp. Didn't commit to So, young pubescent Shrine wanted some extra bangs and mash or whatever, so he just you look nice about some bangers and mash anyway, he's also got a huge ego so he insisted on doing the closing credit theme for Deadpool Yes, but it is, it
2: is amazing it's wonderful, it's a beautiful work, it really weaves together his past career as a rapper his dabbling in um, Dinner Lady flirtatiousness all the way through to his being reborn as a villain in a superhero film Absolutely. It's quite an emotional journey, and Ed's going to take you on that. <laughs> I think it's a good antidote to how boring his character is in the film, because you watch and you're like, what does he do except smile and look evil? And then you realize at the end, he's actually a brilliant rapper. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, to play us out, the dinner Lady Pimp.
2: Yes, and join us on Sunday night when you should be in bed, but you won't be doing that. You'll be up following our Twitter feed when we'll be watching the Oscars, and you might be watching them as well. So, see you then, see and ya. see you next week. Bye.
1: Bye. Bring on the pimp.
2: Who is Ajax? the facts, I'm in the lab, everyday committing criminal acts, I'm a mean machine, not a football team, I'm named after what I use to keep my lab coat clean, I experiment on women, men and babies, I've also got a thing for dinner ladies, she must have unlocked her mutant and she's superhumanly hot, when she serves babies, hey miss, giving me food you look like a dish, don't wanna be rude but give us a kiss, with an extra big plate of fish and chips, oh, shit it's my agent, Mr. scrine how many times, no one? yard, right? I'm begging you, please stop talking about that Cos people only want to hear about Ajax, cos... OK, I don't feel pain Shoot me or stab me, it's all the same I'm right back up, looking pleased again Oi Deadpool, tell me, what's my name? Is there a lady pimple course, I like a simple course Share a canteen pizza, then go back to yours Together we'll concoct an evil plan Have some bangers and mash, then get mashed and bang Hey miss, how about you meet me after school? Bring a chicken pie, that would be cool Just don't invite that prick Deadpool what's oh, my agent again Hey Ed, how many times must this be said? Not the dinner thing on the head It's gonna kill your career stone dead I try to stick to Ajax but there's nothing to say He smirks in every scene in an identical way But I'll have the last laugh because you're going to see me In the sequel as the dinner lady PRMP Francis returns Deadpool 2 He's a Oh, for God's sake. I'm fucking firing myself.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.